Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I'm your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitry Kalyagin and another returning guest, one of our favorite people to talk to, someone I didn't think we'd do 30 plus episodes since the last time we had him on, but we're joined by geopolitical analyst, former diplomat, Jim Jatris, one of the best people to follow on Twitter, in my opinion. Jim, how are you doing? I'm great, Conrad. Good to be with you and Dimitri again. Thank you so much. And yeah, it's always great to have you on. You know, I kind of, like I said before, I kind of consider you one of the, if there's anybody that could be like a perpetual World War Now guest, it would be you. We could basically rack your brain every, uh, pick your brain rather every week. But Dimitri, you're doing well, of course, I assume. Doing good, Conrad. It's great to be here on another episode of World War Now. I hope everyone has had a wonderful week. I'm looking forward to today's analysis of geopolitics as well as some of the potential insights into what has been happening in the world of Orthodox Christianity with Jim. Thank you for being here. Well, there really always is a lot to talk about. So our last episode, we made some predictions about the Vilnius summit that I would say, Dimitri, turned out to basically be be pretty accurate, pretty pretty decisive. And Jim, I was wondering, after we saw everything we did, everyone saw the picture, the famous picture of Dimitri, I mean, not Dimitri, of Zelensky <laughs> away from everybody else and everything. What was your kind of takeaway from the Vilnius NATO summit? Well, my takeaway is a bit mixed. I, I know some people, for example, like at Moon of Alabama, are basically almost popping the champagne corks here to say that uh, NATO is is beginning to step away from Ukraine, that uh, Zelensky did not get what he wanted from NATO, that which was a clear timetable for Ukraine's entry to NATO. And this shows that NATO is beginning, beginning to back away from the Ukraine debacle. I'm not sure that's quite right. It seems to me there was kind of a mix coming out of Vilnius. On the one hand, they did not give Ukraine a timetable for entry into NATO. On the other hand, they dispensed with the usual step of giving a membership action plan and map to Ukraine, essentially sort of checking that box for Ukraine to say, now the only thing is, is when you finally won the war, then we will allow you to come into NATO. And of course, everybody knows they're not going to win the war. But the real question is, does this mean that not just NATO, because let's face it, NATO really means Washington, is Washington willing to to wash its hands of this mess. And I don't think we're there yet. I think we're reaching now a kind of a double inflection point, which is will the Western supporters, primarily of the United States, of Ukraine, uh, decide that they've got to find some way out, an off-ramp, so to speak, or will they double down? Will they do something really stupid, which involves the risk of a more direct NATO entry into the war, and I think that decision point is really becoming unavoidable now for NATO. And the other thing is the uh, inflection point for the Russians. Are they going to finally make a decision as to whether they will cease ceding the initiative to the enemy and, and just simply contending with whatever NATO throws at them? Uh, or will they at some point decide that they will impose a solution on the ground through military force? And it seems they're very hesitant to do that. But I think they're they're really nearing the point where they have to decide one way or the other what their what their own strategy is, not just waiting to see what the other side does. And so I think we have, you know, like two two fundamental decisions lurking out there somewhere on each side. 
Yeah, I think definitely the the ball of peace, so to speak, is is in the court of of Ukraine because Zelensky, um, you know, Zelensky, his leadership and the leadership of NATO as well, including the United States, they need to at least on their end ferment a sort of peaceful solution that they could propose to Russia. But at the moment, it's it's all been essentially rhetoric about taking Crimea and how I mean, just recently, some Tartar representative of Zelensky in the Crimean Peninsula was speaking about how liberated Crimea will have cannabis farms and how we're going to have this magical medical cannabis growing in the occupied Crimea. It's just there, there are all these fantasies coming up about, well, soon eventually we will liberate all this territory that the Russians occupy. But that doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, lead to any peaceful resolution, really, unless the Russians, of course, you know, are forced into a very uh, subservient position and they have to sign this sort of like if if not it's it's not even a peaceful treaty at that point it's a treaty of capitulation giving up all the territories say that they've um taken by referendum and by an, direct annexation or whatnot um so again it it does seem like whoever's controlling Zelensky from the top from the NATO leadership the secretary and uh, the the councils over there they they aren't sort of they aren't giving Zelensky a way out nor do I think. He wants to, I think, because remember, Jim, we've seen recently Poroshenko and other big political figures in Ukraine actually for the first time. I think Poroshenko yesterday appeared in the high Rada in, in Ukraine, the parliament, and actually gave a pretty damning speech claiming that the Vilnius summit actually, as you said, did not go as planned. I think they wanted more Ukraine and Poroshenko, as the orator that he was, essentially gave this pro-war speech saying that, well, we need more planes, we need actual, you know, sort of good guarantees that we can join NATO and Zelensky hasn't given us that. So in, in a way, it's almost like if Zelensky doesn't come up with a solution, either an offensive or a defensive one, his his entire sort of uh, vote and popularity base will slowly dwindle away because, well, it's based on essentially this war, if anything. I think everybody's past the point of, uh, say, um, kind of living off the hype of his comedic reality or his comedy. And it's it's almost like he's entered into this new, I'm going to wear a military shirt to church. I'm going to wear a military shirt to every NATO, every parliament hearing. And uh, we'll try to get away with it for a few years. And hopefully I'll win the next election. Because at the end of the day, Ukraine is lar is sort of pretending to be this democratic state. And he, there are internal enemies that he also has to contend with, not just the, the Russians who are, you know, trying to, well, the Russians have kept him alive for quite some time. You know, they've almost almost openly, covertly agreed not to touch Zelensky's figure. In or I suppose the tactic here is not to make him a martyr. But you're right. Uh, the ball is in the Ukrainian American court. They have to propose a peace treaty, and at the moment, it, it just doesn't seem doesn't seem like they have the right incentives to do so. Maybe the counter, maybe the the counteroffensive, which we've been you know talking about and kind of looking out for, it just hasn't simply hasn't simply occurred yet. So, you know, maybe we're still waiting for that to resolve. No, and, that, and that's one reason why I think we see some disappointment on the Ukrainian side that is with, with regard to the so-called offensive or counter-offensive, that the Ukrainians uh, have done everything that was asked of them. They launched this offensive knowing it was going to be a disaster, simply impaling themselves upon the Russian defenses. I don't know what kind of PR stunt or benefit they thought they were going to get from that, I don't know what else it is they can do or what people like Poroshenko expect that Ukraine can do that doesn't lead to direct NATO involvement in the war, which, you know, I, look, they keep talking about how united NATO is. I think one thing we did see at, the, at Vilnius was just how disunited NATO is, that, in, that obviously some countries like Poland or Lithuania 
of course, Lithuania is a joke when it comes to its military, maybe have the inclination to try to want to get directly involved in this war. I don't think the rest of Europe wants to do that. I'm not even sure the United States wants to do that, except for maybe some hotheads like uh, like Lindsey Graham or people like that who, who are not living in the real world. Uh, so, you know, the, the Ukrainians are really out of options. But what I think then becomes the mystery is what the Russians want to do. You know, you, you mentioned something about a deal or an off-ramp or a treaty or something of this sort. I mean, it's amazing to me how many people still are saying, you know, back in March of April of last year, they almost had a peace deal at Istanbul and, and neutrality for Ukraine and so forth. I don't really understand that because to me, that would simply have been a, a, a kind of a Minsk three agreement where Moscow would have been accepting yet more lies, yet more assurances that simply would not be kept. And that's what I don't really understand from the Russian point of view. What is it that are they waiting for? Because they're they're reaching the point where their strategy of attrition of the Ukrainian army is reaching the zero point where there simply isn't going to be a Ukrainian army that can resist any military moves from Moscow, yet they seem to be waiting for something uh, that I can't figure out what it is. If it's some kind of a capitulation or a peace overture uh, or an off-ramp from the West, what good is that? Because it simply would be more promises that will not be kept when they're in a position, it seems to me, from a purely military point of view, to impose facts on the ground and the other side will simply have to accept it. It doesn't seem they're really willing to move in that direction either. And maybe that's part of what was behind this whole bizarre episode with uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, the, the basis of which we still haven't quite figured out. No, I think that's a really, really important question. And I think the fear for a lot of us is that Russia has some bizarre idea that there will be like a political collapse in Ukraine and that somehow they'll be able to capitalize and get someone more favorable back in office. I think that's a silly, silly thing to believe considering how much the CIA intelligence, NATO in general is propping up you know, the political side of that country, as well as the fact that in the end, there's just like, like you said, like it was going to almost be a Minsk three, like how, like, it, it, are we really so naive to think that like, we can, we can kind of work within these frameworks now that so many people have died. And now that so much, uh, you know, that there's been like, I think with the Evgeny Prigozhin thing, you're right, that a lot of people were afraid, are afraid still in the aftermath of it, that there's an internal battle of people that do have a plan. And then there's people in power that very much don't have a plan, but are trying to maintain some kind of status quo. And that's now that got that fight in the background got so hot that it became a thing going on in reality. But now apparently we're hearing that Putin met with Prigozhin a week after it happened when we all thought he was supposedly in a Belarusian hotel with no windows. Yes, yes, right. And of course, the main targets of Prigozhin's criticism were Shoigu and Gerasimov. And as far as we can tell, there has been no real shakeup of the uh, of the upper levels of the uh, Russian uh, military structures. And, uh, and where's Surovikin? Uh, so if, if there has been some resolution of the issues that were behind the Prigozhin episode, whatever that was, it doesn't seem that that resolution has taken place yet. It seems still to be in some kind of state of flux. And I would I would guess that the next step the Russians decide to make will depend in part on how they resolve that. Yeah, that's right. I think um, also, on the on, I guess, on the question of Surovikin and Prigozhin, there is also the uh, the idea that, well, 
well, if Surovikin was to blame for maybe whatever occurred on the 24th of June, perhaps maybe making this public, you know, in order to ease the tensions, at least in the military, as well as in the Russian public, because the Russian public knows no more than we do now, or even no, no more than anybody on the on the internet knows. And in fact, it's there's some really strange news keeps cropping up about uh, Surovik and some of his liberal friends, or his wife is quite popular amongst uh, certain people in, in that community around Moscow. And she seems to, uh, you know, she seems to kind of point towards, well, uh, she keeps to, she, she, she seems to mention that Surovikin hasn't really been contacting her. So there is some real fear. And I, I mean, I, I did tweet about it, a more or less conspiratorial version that, well, look, it reminds me of the NKVD um, essentially uh, terrorizing and interrogating Rokossovsky right before the World War II, you know, knocking out his teeth, pissing on him, breaking his ribs. And Rokossovsky then turns out to be, what I suppose the second best marshal in World War Two on the Russian Soviet side in the Red Army after Zhukov. So it, it's just very. Uh, I'm not sure if that's exactly what we're seeing here, but of course it, it is a sort of uh, conspiratorial version. But there's the other news, I guess, relating to not only Jim did Shoigu and Gerasimov not be removed, or there was no shakeup, at least visually at the moment, no shakeup has been confirmed. But we do have this recent news just a, almost a few days ago. General Ivan Popov of the 58th Army, essentially his army ended up uh, pushing through the Kharkov Oblast in the north of Ukraine last year in February 22. And uh, General Ivan Popov essentially had this private chat with his officers of his particular army, so colonels, majors, uh, lieutenants, I'm sure, were there as well. And he posted a video, like a, not a video, a voice recording. I'm not sure if it was in Telegram or what kind of apps the, the Russian military uses. Hopefully they don't use Telegram and maybe something a bit more secure. But they have a private chat where only the officers are allowed to sort of mm -hmm. be there. And he posted this voice clip where he essentially criticizes, you know, says there's a lack of support, there's a lack of, uh, you know, there's a lack of communication from, from the general staff, uh, you know, even above his rank which, you know, he's a major general, so I'm not sure who's even above that, maybe Gerasimov or who knows. And he's just, he's basically just complaining about um, artillery shortages, things of that nature, just general stuff that we've heard over the last few months. And this clip was made public by a Russian politician in the parliament. Somehow he got a, he got a hold of it and he tried to use it for his own political gain. And eventually, and Ivan Popov was simply fired. Uh, he was, his resignation was forced by Gerasimov and Shoigu just in the last few days. And people are... Coming out, again, uh, there's this interesting trend. Everybody um, is kind of giving their opinion on this because, well, it's a general who was actually very good. Apparently, everything that's been said about this general, he he looks like an ethnic Russian. He's a strong he's a strong sort of presence in the army. He loves his troops. He's kind of like a Suvorov-type figure. So he, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't hold himself in a very high regard. He doesn't separate himself from the troops. He hangs out with them. He knows exactly what his officers need. He knows he knows how to run an actual organization to manage other sort of military staff and he's, he's very much beloved and now he was just recently i suppose removed from commanding in the 58th army in the north of ukraine and there's just questions as to well why why was this prompted like he hasn't failed anything you know and i guess it's just the lowering again lowering of the of morale of the russian military and the you know questions arise and uh to add sort of you know more fuel to the fire, General Ivan Popov releases another voice recording, but this one is to a broader audience, not just to his private uh, collegium of officers. And he essentially states that you are my Spartans, you are my 300 Spartans, all of you officers and my entire my entire army. I love you guys. I'm sorry I have to go. And it's it's almost like a it's almost like a what, what you'd imagine Prigozhin would give to Wagner. And in a way, it's, you know, it sent a shiver down the spine of a lot of 
Russian journalists and I suppose people in the military because this man is a beloved general, but he's in a he's in a regular army and he's speaking to his soldiers as if is almost like as a Caesar would speak to. I mean, it's it's it just brings up interesting ideas as to well, what exactly is going on? Because democratization in the military was never seen as like a good thing. You know, there shouldn't be populist generals sort of running the show based on popularity. It always there does need to be some level of subordination, but. Um, yeah, just an interesting story. And again, skeptics of the story who claim that, well, this isn't a big deal. It's because, you know, there were generals over the course of last year that were removed from their positions and also placed back into, you know, into different roles. So yeah, like Surovikin, for example, was the leader of the United Military Front. And then he was, you know, placed to the second, uh, made a deputy um, of the, of, of, you know, the SMO command. So, you know, there have been some movements, but this has been probably the most, uh, the weirdest thing that's happened this week, I think, in terms of what's happened in the SMO. Yes, and, and the thing is, I guess what's really um, uh, strikes me is that is that you know in his in his uh, speech at the time of the Prigozhin episode, uh, Putin referred uh, made an allusion to the events of 1917 and how this resulted in fratricide, the collapse of the Russian state, and so forth, which seemed to be overstating the problem for, for something as minor as that. But it does expose the fact that Russia very rarely is can be defeated on the battlefield, but there seems to be sometimes a kind of a fragility at the center in terms of the, the organs of power, the, the highest levels of the state, either because there's some kind of disarray or a lack of, uh, of clear lines of authority or something like this. And this perhaps is what still gives hope to the people on the other side, not only in Kiev, but in terms of their sponsors in Washington and in London and so forth. Yes, 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 they've lost the war on the ground in Ukraine, but can they still somehow snatch the, uh, victory from the jaws of defeat if the Russians become their own worst enemy? If the Russians somehow fall back and you know fighting among themselves between the you know the pro-westernizers and the and the and the corrupt oligarchs and and the and the and the people who you know, maybe want to do something more decisive militarily and and somehow that that results in Russia not doing militarily what common sense and military necessity would suggest that they do. I, I'm not saying that's the case, but it seems that that danger still exists somewhere. I think that's a really good point. I just want to ask you straight up, do you think that part of Russia's fear of going all in and actually taking some of this territory and then having to govern it and, and you know, integrate it into the Russian Federation? Are they afraid of, because we know before the SMO started that the stated U.S. foreign policy for a Russian occupation of Ukraine was a prolonged, sustained guerrilla conflict inside of occupied territory. Do you think that Russia is afraid that adding this new territory that was just a war zone to their federation might increase the possibility of their balkanization and collapse as a state due to Western influence? It, it's possible they're thinking partly about that. I don't think that's the main concern. I think, the main, again, I'm guessing here, but I think the main concern is that they don't want to trigger, and, and, and by the way, this is assuming they're actually thinking this out rather than just in disarray at the center, which mm. is entirely possible. But assuming this is a, a thought out concern or a strategy where they're sort of sailing between the Scylla and Charybdis on the one side 
of what can we do that's too provocative that will cause, that will trigger a direct NATO intervention. On the other hand, what do we not do that drags this thing on for far too long and allows NATO to escalate step by step and keep pace with the Russian war effort and also eventually result in a NATO direct intervention. I think they're erring on the side of caution. Let's take it slow. Let's take it careful. That's Caution seems to be Putin's uh, default mode. I don't think they they really have sufficient concern for that that the dragging us out and not putting an end to it like for example all the question of where do they send the f-16s or anything else well there's no more ukrainian army no more ukrainian state there's no place to send the f-16 to is there uh so the, the, there's there's ways to sort of foreclose a lot of the options from the western side that the russians seem very um hesitant to foreclose as far as the idea of a guerrilla war uh, i don't i really don't know what areas of ukraine that the Russians intend to take control of. Uh, I frankly think the idea of a of a prolonged guerrilla war is actually not that great. Um, to start with, um, Ukrainians are not Afghans. Uh, I don't think they're as going to be quite as uh, as eager to you know court death and go to their seventy two virgins the way people in Afghanistan are willing to do it. It's not a big mountainous country where it's almost impossible to track people down in their caves and so forth. And 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 to be quite brutal about it, I think a lot of the people that would be a problem for the Russians if they were to take control of various areas are fleeing to the West. The most radical anti-Russian elements are simply not going to be there at the time that the Russian forces show up. So I think that danger exists, but I don't think it's as great as the fantasies of Western policymakers think it is. I definitely agree. I think I want to ask a few questions following that up. I want to ask, do you think some of that same consideration about the response from the West, despite there being, at least in our minds, pretty clear, I guess, aggressive things that Russia could neutralize with a more direct military approach. Do you think that perhaps some of their allies might be whispering in their ear, like people, forces like China, forces like, uh, like even Lukashenko in Belarus, we've heard ha- possibly has his own perspective on how the war should go. And as well, we see Turkey, who up until recently, this is kind of tying this all in together with the Vilnius summit, we saw Erdogan come out and totally just throw in his support for, I guess, Ukraine joining NATO. And then, of course, acceding to Sweden joining NATO with promises about supposed Turkish EU membership. I'm wondering if that state of disarray also comes from Russia's attempt at juggling all of these alliances it has, trying to maintain its economic and friendly relations with the countries that, you know, aren't in the West explicitly that have kind of stayed by them or at least not explicitly sanctioned them and et cetera. I suppose that's a possible Conrad. uh, Conrad. I'm sure that that the Russians always have one eye on what the reaction is, not of just the people you you regard as allies, certainly the Chinese at the top, but also other countries. But uh, they also and and the global South, as they say, generally. But I think that, that, that there's enough common sense in those countries to realize that this is a life and death issue for the Russians and that they're going to do what they need to do. And that those countries may have their own opinions and suggestions about what the Russians should do, but that's not going to be the primary concern in Moscow. I, I think those influences are probably fairly minor. Yeah, it does seem like, uh, I, I think there's a, high poss- there's a high chance that either the Chinese have on one hand, and they might have even done verbs, Xi Jinping, you know, his visit to Moscow earlier this year, he might have actually, you know, 
presented both options or at least given the full perspective to Putin and his team that look on one hand you have to be cautious because the world economy its stability at least on in the markets it does depend on Russia's actions you know as soon as a tactical nuclear missile is launched or we use anything uh, above say uh, you know, degraded uranium shells or, you know, depleted uranium shells or cluster munitions, or even if the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant, you know, as soon as things escalate past a certain point, there will be uh, causal effects in, in the world that may affect, you know, China standing and even the prosperity of the entire, you know, entirety of all the BRICS nations and, this, you know, the second world, so to speak. But there's also the other perspective of, you know, China, of course, probably has shaken hands with Russia on the, on the whole Taiwan deal so that whenever the operations, the special Taiwan military operation does occur, or the special diplomatic operation in Taiwan. When that does take place, Russia will be firmly in China's court. And, you know, we've seen that with the naval exercises a couple of weeks ago, where the two Russian uh, Pacific Sea Fleet uh, ships essentially just sailed past Taiwan, in, you know, docked in a Chinese harbor, and essentially were just hanging out there, kind of giving this um, image of solidarity, I suppose, in international relations terms. Just kind of saying, you know, being there to you know, to support. Uh, on the other hand, it, you know, going back to Ukraine, you mentioned Jim that uh, you know there is this caution from Putin and his team. I completely agree. If anything, that's been the story of the last year and a half. It's just a very cautious, encroaching. Uh, it's a very slow and very methodical. And you know, even notice how even attacking the uh, sort of utility infrastructures of Ukraine, the, the water supplies, the uh, electricity stations around Kiev, you know, providing Ukraine all these blackouts and things of that nature. It's It only started in September, October of 22. So there was almost six or seven months when mm -hmm. Ukrainians had complete internet access. They were filming TikToks. They were giving, you know, they were giving, uh, the information was free to travel all over Ukraine during the beginning of the SMO. It was very strange kind of seeing all that happen, but the Russians do seem to be progressing somewhat. And and the Ukrainians aren't helping themselves, frankly, because the if you think about it, the initial um, one of the initial objectives, at least on paper, was the denazification process. And you know they used the Azov Battalion and all of these weird uh, criminal groups within Ukraine, within of course the National Guard itself, which was you know crazy. But they used all these groups as as a sort of pretext to go in and to free the Ukrainian people from these villains. And of course, these people are very easy, easily painted as villains because they commit atrocities and they torture citizens of Donbass and they have over the last eight years. And, they, you know, they post about it online and they have all this anti-Islamic rhetoric, etc. But what's interesting is the Ukrainians seem to be feeding that idea by simply, by, you know, they continue to show us these Azov militants. And especially with this recent Turkey story, I think it's funny, Conrad and Jim, like they could have, you know, we almost forgot that Azov ever existed over the last few months because, you know, they just haven't shown up in the headlines. And then suddenly it's like, well, Erdogan is freeing them and these heroes are returning back to Ukraine. And then you realize these heroes are just plain old neo-Nazis who Putin spoke about last year. And we're back to page one where, again, the Russian, I guess, the, the Russian uh, military industrial complex and the Russian media machine can use this can use the anti-neo-Nazi rhetoric as a sort of tool to keep uh, pushing the war from their perspective. At least... I don't see how this ever benefits Ukraine unless they're so sure of themselves that NATO will have their back, as maybe what maybe this Vilnius summit showed, and that you know uh, the US and NATO will not let Ukraine lose at least on the ground, which is why they really don't care about you know who's throwing up sick hiles, who's giving all this imagery about what kind of fuel they throw into the fire of I suppose a bad you know ugly public relations because that's what it is showing these sort of people um, having them on the front pages of your newspapers and meeting with the president of Ukraine and taking photos with him. I mean, it's just very bizarre. And 
uh, yeah, it does. It does seem like Ukraine has uh, shot themselves in the foot again with this Azov story. On the other hand, you know, there's the perspective. Uh, Conrad may disagree, but there is that perspective of uh, you know this may also look really bad for Putin as well because there was this agreement with Turkey um, that look, you're going to keep these Azov militants, these Azov command c commanders in Turkey on house arrest until the end of the war, and then they can return home. But no, Erdogan actually went against this agreement, and it's showing. It's showing Russian diplomacy to be a bit less than maybe what we have expected over the last few years where, you know, Russian terms and agreements have been held to. And here we have Erdogan essentially stepping all over that and just doing as he pleases. So I think that's another perspective. And, you know, it, it does it, this combined of the Prigozhin story does in a way lessen the credibility of, say, of, of say maybe the Kremlin and the way uh and that, and I guess the Russian strong, the sort of strong Siloviki, strong man position that the right, you know, that the Russian government has been pushing, because it's like, well, if if people can do these things externally in a foreign policy aspect as well as internally with Prigozhin running around, you know, driving tanks at Moscow, like, what exactly, where where is that strong man position that um, we've been hearing about for all these decades? Well, it it also raises the question of other things that what what has happened remember but months ago we heard about oh there are going to be trials of these uh azov and and idar and other people for their crimes against donbass civilians what's happened on that front zip absolutely nothing it's uh you you you, you keep wondering about the things they should be doing that they're not doing uh it's interesting you mentioned dimitri the idea that NATO will not let the Ukrainians lose. And again, this is where you, you end up sort of puzzled because we're nearing the point where there's absolutely nothing NATO could do other than a direct military attack. And even that probably wouldn't do the job. Oh, there's nothing that NATO can do to stop Ukraine from being defeated, that we're getting close, as I say, to the zero point for the Ukrainian forces where the Russians decide to move and go on the offensive. There's absolutely nothing Kiev can do to stop it. Yet, are they going to do that or not? We we have no indication of that. I'm also glad you mentioned the Zaporozhye nuclear plant, because remember, we had a sort of, for a few weeks, this kind of a spate of articles and, and claims, oh, the Russians are going to blow it up. And of course, everybody knew this was preparing the ground for a false flag, where they would accuse the Russians of what it would amount to a dirty bomb at the at the nuclear plant. And that seemed to have just sort of vanished in thin air. And I, and I sort of wonder, if maybe it's too soon to, to, to say we're clear of that, but I wonder if somebody somewhere told the Ukrainians, no, no, that's, that's a bridge too far. Please do not do that. Uh, and because they weren't willing to face the consequences, maybe I'm being a little you know, naive and giddy here by suggesting that saner heads may have prevailed, prevailed here. But at the moment, uh, it, it seems odd that, that that story seems to almost dis have disappeared from the headlines. It's true. And I think a lot of people were really expecting that to be because it was lining up with the Vilnius summit. People thought that really might be what they were going to go mm -hmm, with. Mm -hmm. With And you hear a lot. I mean, people say NATO troops on the ground. I think a lot of us have already prepared ourselves for some middle ground where they send in a bunch of Poles, Latvians, Lithuanians with some American contractors and call it something that isn't NATO, right? I think that's the a lot of you know, I'm sure a lot of uh, think tanks are yeah. thinking about the best way to frame that Coalition to uh, the willing, people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, try to the best way to frame that to the people of those countries that isn't convincing them that they're just objectively declaring war on Russia. But yeah, the Turkey stuff was very crazy. I saw some reports that Russia, uh, Putin may have canceled his trip to Ankara, but I haven't seen that confirmed by any official Russian sources. I don't know how exactly he's, I, I guess, going to handle that. But 
when it comes to these atrocities committed against Donbass residents and all of that as well, I mean, that leads us to what I think we consider on this show the most important reason why we think Russia should really stop playing games and get serious about this is what's going on in the church. And like we had said in the last episode, we saw a bit of a lull mm-hmm. in the persecutions, but it seems that they're coming back. I'm seeing now Metropolitan Pavel, who had been under now months of house arrest, is now apparently going to actual prison. Metropolitan Anufri's residence, of course, has been sealed up in the Kiev Caves Lavra, and the Lavra is about to apparently become a Stavropegial monastery of the Ecumenical Patriarch. We talked about that last episode. But Jim, I'm just wondering if um, as far as some of that stuff goes, I mean, is there... I guess the risk of the church really kind of getting kind of forgotten about in the midst of all of this. And even you know, we see Metropolitan Onufri is still doing his best to seem as a, as some kind of, you know, neutral actor, not pro-Russian or whatever, but at a certain point is like, is signing you is signing a Ukrainian flag really going to convince the people that are like breaking down the doors of your churches that they don't hate you? Uh, no, no, it's not going to convince anybody, of course. And, and by the way, I don't think it's just uh play acting on the part of the of a metropolitan Nufri and the canonical church. I mean, I think that in any conflict, even between Orthodox countries, there's always the obligation of the church to essentially take a patriotic position, even if you don't like the government. So, you know, just uh, as the, the church in Moscow took a patriotic position during the war with Germany, I mean, you have, even though it's an anti anti-church atheist government you still have to do you still have to stand with your country you know when unfortunately you know the greeks bulgarians serbs go to war against one another you expect the churches in those countries to take the side of their own country and i think that's what the ukrainian orthodox church is doing i don't think it's feigned i don't think it's just calculated for for political purposes at the same time that they're taking what i think is a genuinely pro-Ukrainian position in the war, their own Ukrainian government, or at least this Ukrainian puppet government of the, of the Western powers, is persecuting them. You just saw they passed a law in there, Verkhovna Rada, that will change now the date of Christmas from January 7th to December mm-hmm. 25th exclusively. There will be no longer any January 7th holiday. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's still a full court press on, on the Ukrainian church, and I, I don't see any hope of rescue any from any quarter at this point. They can't really be saying, well, wait till the Russians get here, because that would be an absolute disaster for them. Uh, and I don't think that's actually their position. At the same time, there's no uh, there's no respite for them. There's no rescue for them. And they're going to keep, keep just turning the screws on them. And, of course, all these governments in the West, including that of the United States, who keep t- talking about, oh, how much they, they're in favor of human rights and religious freedom and all that. Obviously, they're just cheering it on. Uh, and uh, and you're and you're it's sadly true what you pointed out too with regard to Constantinople and and the I you know they're 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 cheap they're cheap by jowl with this I mean they're they're fully complicit in this persecution of the of the of the Ukrainian Church and uh, unfortunately it doesn't say much about uh, not only about the ecumenical patriarchate but about the state of orthodoxy in the world right now that we've got this. The, this really this monstrous crime being committed against the the canonical church in Ukraine and a big chunk of the Orthodox Church outside of Ukraine is cheering it on. Yeah, there is this, I suppose, delegitim- uh, there is this uh, delegitimization of of any clergyman, including, of course, including and uh, not exclusive to bishops of the Ukrainian Church, which speak about their connections and ties to 
uh, Russian history or the Russian church uh, proper, which, you know, of course, this uh, affects the canonical bishops very greatly, especially in the areas uh, such as Zaporozhye. So Bishop Luke of Zaporozhye hasn't been in his home diocese of Zaporozhye for uh, almost a year now. So he's been kind of in exile in Melitopol and uh, hasn't been able to look after his um, his flock. And there's many stories like that where bishops have essentially uh, have left their diocese because, you know, at threat of pro um, prosecution or persecution by the Ukrainian state. So it's kind of an active process of a lot of these bishops being ostracized based on their views or even, say, them just being clear that, look, this is, uh, you know, the Russian and Ukrainian churches should be combined or at least related in some sense. Uh, nevertheless, I, I do think Mitropolitan Onufri and the entire leadership of the canonical Ukrainian church is under very, very heavy pressure because at the, on one hand, they do understand that they are the legitimate church of, of Kiev and the Western Russian diocese. So that, that entire massive sector uh, that, you know, at one point was united to the Russian church without any sort of borders of roughly 40 to 50 bishops in total, which is a large amount. That's, you know, almost more bishops than the entirety of, say, a, the Romanian and Bulgarian church combined. But th this many bishops on, in this in this land are under threat of possibly either being overtaken by Uniates or, and, you know, I, I understand that the statistics on the ground are different, whereas in, as soon as a church joins the schismatic OCU of Epiphany, the, there is there is obviously a drop in people attending mm -hmm. church. There's a, almost like a superstition, even amongst the very uh, unchurched Ukrainians, that hey, uh, these new people, we shouldn't go to their church because you know that's not uh, you know we shouldn't go commune there. And so there is this, uh, and these views kind of come up on all over Telegram, and sort of anecdotal evidence keeps cropping up that the church attendance of these actual OCU parishes is a lot a lot lower than those of the UOC uh, MP under Renufri. And so that's kind of good because, uh, in a way, uh, Mitchell. No, 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 absolutely. And in fact, you know, not only not only does the attendance drop in many cases when they seize these churches, they simply lock them up. I mean, yeah. because nobody's going to go to them. <laughs> I mean, it has nothing to do with like two competing flocks or two competing congregations of a church. It's just we need to seize your church, and if nobody goes to it, that's just fine because that's not the important thing. I was in a discussion with some Greek friends on a on a podcast, mm -hmm. and I I got a note of uh, somebody sent me a a document from one of the. Um, theologians at, at a Greek university referring to the options of the schismatic church in Ukraine, meaning Metropolitan uh, Onofri's church, that they're now the schismatics in the eyes ah. of Constantinople, and they have no choice but to regularize themselves by coming under the authority of Domenko. I mean, this is how bad it is from the point of view of the people that are supporting Constantinople. What you stated, Jim, that's just it shows the uh, the weird canonical ecclesiological view of those scholars and academics within Orthodoxy who support this position that the that the OCU is the legitimate one and the UOCMP is somehow lost its legitimacy, lost its grace, lost its uh, proper fact that w when they actually haven't breached a single canon, they haven't breached any, they haven't gone into schism, they haven't made any false announcements, or they haven't even even they haven't even supported the war in any any. The proper sense so they haven't actually offended almost anybody and in fact now that apparently they're in this de facto the euro schism you know according to say western scholars and yeah it's just a little bit bizarre and it's almost unprecedented we've never seen a church i suppose ostracized and pushed to the sidelines this much as the church of anufri without um anufri doing literally anything he hasn't done he's he's been always been pro-ukrainian always been pro-peace from 2014 he's always every year he's met with 
uh, President Poroshenko and even the early Zelensky, and he's actually begged them to, uh, you know, stop the conflict in the Ukraine and the Donbass, uh, stop the bombing. So he's actually vouched for a united Ukraine from the beginning, even if that upsets some Russians because, you know, uh, Russians don't necessarily view a united Ukraine as a sort of, a, you know, end goal of any sort or even a civilizationally as a good thing. But nevertheless, that's what Metropolitan Onufri was for from the beginning. So there's nothing really that can be held up against him. Nevertheless, he's mm-hmm. almost you know, push to the sidelines. Yeah. Sorry, Conrad. No, I, I wanted to let you finish. I just wanted to also kind of lead this conversation along. Jim, I want to get your thoughts in general. Remember, uh, we love having Greeks on the show. We don't want it to just be the American Slav show, right? So the, uh, uh, as far as some of this goes, <laughs> the uh, we know that the OCU has a much cozier relationship with the Uniates just by its inherent nature of existing due to the ecumenical patriarch. And we see we like we saw Zelensky meeting with the EP and a lot of the churches there. I want to get your thoughts on what was going on with the Macedonians as well. But is there this chance that there will be that Ukraine will kind of be used as this catalyst between the Uniates and the Schismatics to be like a like a the first melting pot, like the like a petri dish of melting between Orthodoxy and Catholics? Of course, there's always the rumors about. 2025 and then the question then becomes as that keeps going where will you know depending on how much territory the russians actually end up with at the end of all of this we've already seen parishes in the occupied territory go directly under patriarch kirill and to fully join the moscow patriarchate as it were in light of the you know kind of difficult situation with the chrism and with autonomy that's going on on the especially just with the front lines and access to to facilities and everything so i'm wondering what you think, I guess, the dangers of some of this ecclesiology uh, could lead to, and in general, what you think, I guess, the best situation that you, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church can hope out of all of this? Well, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, the, the parishes in the areas controlled by Russia going on directly under Moscow, because you can see that that even puts more pressure on Metropolitan Nofri, which means that as Russian forces uh, expand territory of control, which I think they will do, uh, you know, whether they do it quickly or slowly, I don't know. But in any case, that also means cutting down on the canonical territory of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. That obviously puts uh, Metropolitan Nufri in an either even weaker position. Um, I, I don't know where that leads ultimately. As far as the big picture that you're pointing to between Pope Francis and Metropolitan, excuse me, and Patriarch Bartholomew, yes, as far as I know, that's all tra- still on track for 2025. And I think, yes, there very is, is a very good chance that Ukraine, between the, the uncanonical OCU and the uh, Ukrainian Catholic Greek, uh, Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, uh, it could be something of a, a petri dish or a laboratory for bringing that to fruition. I did see a recent report that uh, Major Archbishop uh, Sviatoslav Shevchuk, the head of the mm-hmm. Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, uh, did uh, uh, say that they expect at some point in the near future to be allowed uh, access to the Pochayev Monastery, which, as far as I know, is still under the control of the canonical church, under Metropolitan Onufri has not yet been seized by the schismatics, but I would expect that once it is seized, there would be some access provided to it for the Greek Catholic Church. And as we know, there have been instances of concelebration between the OCU and the Greek Catholic Church in Ukraine. Uh, And of course, the fact that Major Archbishop uh, Shevchuk is is a very close friend from Buenos Aires, 
with Pope Francis is 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 not incidental. It seems to me that there's a very good personal rapport there. So yeah, I think that 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 using that as kind of a like a like a, a test run to see how far they can get with a cozy relationship between the schismatic Ukrainian Church and the Greek Catholics is is very definitely in the cards. And I wouldn't even rule out that some kind of a declaration of intercommunion between those two bodies might be used as kind of a, like a, a, a little uh, toe in the water to see how far they can get in that direction. Well, then where does that end, right? I mean, if a supposed body that is directly, well, it's always the debate, are they really autocephalous? Or are they actually just directly vassals of the ecumenical patriarchate, right? But with their with the new ecumenical patriarch's ecclesiology, who, what, who even knows anymore, right? But I think there's this, I mean, the fear is then that means so the EP is in com- almost direct communion with the Pope. And then that means that everybody besides Moscow is somehow indirectly in communion with, I mean, I know that being in communion with schismatics doesn't immediately, you know, I know we have a nuanced ecclesiology on all of this, but that's just, um, it's just such a sneaky yeah, way to do yeah. such a big thing that people wouldn't even realize. I think sneaky is the right word here, and I think sneaky is exactly how they intend to approach this. And I think that's one reason why the Vatican's diplomacy here has been very, very nuanced, very, very um, uh, laid back in a way uh, that they're not jumping in with both feet uh, and uh, and are trying to also position themselves as a role as peacemaker. And and look, I don't doubt that some of the that might be sincere in terms of, you know, people not killing anybody, each other. But uh, nonetheless, I think they're looking at the big picture. And frankly, I think they're also looking at the big picture with regard to um, to uh, Moscow, that I think the Vatican realizes that if they'll simply have a union or some kind of a quasi union or new kind of a Florence or Lyon with just Constantinople, and Moscow is the odd man out, that is a victory for them, but it's not the victory they want. They want the whole thing. So I think they're going to try to find some way to pursue an ecumenist agenda with Constantinople in a way that forces Moscow not to entirely burn their bridges. I mean, after all, we know there's also ecumenical dialogue between Moscow and uh, and the Vatican. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a very complex picture, and, and frankly, it's not a very edifying one. No, and it's extremely dangerous because just historically, I was just thinking about the fact that the Vatican uh, almost as, even though the Vatican is so rich and powerful and they have thousands of bishops and a lot, and the churches there, their church, um, you know, so to speak, is a lot larger than that of the Eastern Orthodox one, just in terms of, you know, population and volume. But there is this consideration of, you know, they've mm-hmm. always wanted to strike at these Eastern dioceses in some way or either, either through the uh, Union of Brest or through uh, even the Bolshevik Revolution, when the Pope and the uh, and the Vatican actually wrote open letters to the Bolshevik government, actually stating like, "What is your position on Catholicism?" And they were actually quite amicable letters sent to the early Bolshevik government to Lenin and to Trotsky, trying to almost get because hey, the evil Tsar has fallen, so he's out of the picture. Maybe there could be some sort of cooperation there, especially with the modernists that showed up in 1917 and 18, and the Russian Church was going through this tumultuous uh, semi early persecution stage and the Catholics were almost about to you know kind of jump at this opportunity so it does bring into account this uh this fear I suppose for Patriarch Kirill as well as as the Russian bishops like the internal stability of Russian uh the Russian political world of you know Ruski Mir that they've built as soon as if it does start if there if there is a shake-up if there is a Prigozhin 2.0 or something even worse than that it would bring about this uh encroachment of all these western 
I suppose by Western, I mean Western European, mostly Catholic as well as uh, possibly Protestant sects actually kind of jumping at the opportunity to intervene into Russia and at least to involve themselves a bit more in the entire debacle that would be going down. Yeah, I like yeah. The, the one example is, well, Patriarch Kirill and even a lot of the bishops took this, and even the Bishop of Rostov-on-Don, through which Prigozhin was driving through, openly had prayer services that Saturday, um, you know, that Saturday and the Sunday, praying for, for God to rid Russia of civil war and to prevent the civil war from beginning. So, again, it was, um, I mean, we mentioned this of Conrad, but it is this bizarre thing that almost the Russian church is kind of sidelined from the decisions of, not Putin necessarily, but Putin's subordinates, for example, uh, you know, maybe Gerasimov or even Shoigu. So Gerasimov and Shoigu, they, they're doing God knows what. They, they, you know, they're executing their own plans, but the Russian church is kept in the dark. So I don't think the Russian church knew about the 24th of February, 22. I don't think the Russian church knew about the 24th of June, 23. The Russian church is almost standing there on the side, yeah. watching the world in front of them change in this in this dramatic fashion, watching Prigozhin drive tanks and kind of just being like, well, I guess Patriarch Kirill needs to give this sermon and ask the Russian people to pray for Putin and pray for this prevention of civil war. So the Russian church took this very seriously. And a few days later, of course, Putin meets with Prigozhin, and it's all good. It's all hunky dory, and it's all a big, you know, it's it's almost like a secret plan of some sort to get the, you know, there's all all these suppositions. But the church is kind of left on the side. Meanwhile, you know, the persecution and the weird uh, anti-church pol pol policies continue to occur in Ukraine. And what what we're seeing, I mean, just last week, I, I think Orpha, well, Orpha, I, Christian, I, yeah, gone. I, I I don't yeah I don't know how much you want to get down in the weeds to some of the church issues. I mean, you mentioned the 1920s, and of course there was the infamous uh, Dervigny episode where a French priest was sent, actually a secret bishop, into Russia uh, in the 1920s, and essentially to try to build a structure of the Roman Catholic Church on, the, you might say, the, the remains of the persecution of the Orthodox Church in Ukraine. It was really only with uh, uh, Metropolitan Sergei's declaration of, of uh of loyalty to the Soviet government in 1927, that the Soviets finally shut the door on that and drove them out of there, because at that point they felt that they had the Russian church under under their control. Um, I, I, again, I don't know back to the, back to 2025 what we can expect. I don't know how uh, how many people had seen this recent declaration from Alexandria from one of these ecumenical commissions. Uh, looking at, in this case, on the ecclesiology of the church during the first millennium. And of course, reading this, I would have expected the worst of this kind of, you know, ecubabble mush. And if you actually read the document, it's like 95% taking the orthodox position. If you if you read the thing, you think it was drafted almost entirely to depict the first millennium of the church before the Great Schism as uh, seeing the church as the Orthodox Church sees it, that it was it was collegial, it was synodical, it was not a papal church in it by any means, and the Roman Catholic side side off on this. And I think a lot of people would look at that and say, huh, how about that? May, gee, maybe they're really coming around. Okay, maybe color, color me suspicious. I, I think what we're seeing here at setting the stage for 2025 is some kind of a declaration that's not going to look like Lyon or Florence. It's going to be marketed as a triumph of orthodoxy, that Rome is accepting all the points of division on the orthodox side, on the filioque, on ecclesiology, on the role of the papacy, on the immaculate conception, on purgatory. The Pope has agreed that all of the things the orthodox do are correct, and we will, and, and Rome will accept them in toto. Um, 
and that the Orthodox will say, see, we're reestablishing re communion, ending the schism based on the Orthodox terms. Now, within the Western Patriarchate, within the Roman Catholic Church, all of those things will simply remain in force. The Church will remain exactly as it is, and the Orthodox are welcome to con consider that to be theologumina, not, not doctrinal. And, but nonetheless, we would then be in communion with the Roman Church with all of its errors. I think that's what's being prepared for us, and I think something like this Alexandria document is is part of uh, paving the way for that. Oh yeah, and I think in many ways, I mean, I, I'm curious as to how, maybe they would do a sort of uh, there would even be some give on our side, whereas the it's like, look, you're the Pope of the Pope of the West, EP is the Pope of the East. You know, it, they would probably work yeah, in supposedly yeah. mm -hmm. boosting yeah. the uh, the EP's power as well among the the Orthodox world, and then they could all unite on. Who knows? Maybe they'd work with the government to have a, you know, a a church. A, there's a church in Russia that they, there's a new schismatic Moscow patriarchate that they try to convince to become in communion with. Who knows where that kind of comes down the line? But yeah, we could talk about. I want to actually talk about some of the church stuff maybe in. Uh, Macedonia as we start to move south into some of these Balkan conflicts. But as we leave Ukraine and Russia to wrap that up, I want to ask you, Jim, what you think the best, I guess, solution as far as actually kind of ending this conflict goes? Because people always say best thing to do is just achieve peace now and end it. And look, I empathize with the desire to not see people dying, but I don't see Minsk three or even just freezing the borders where they are right now, not just putting us in this same position a decade, 15 years down the line, maybe even less. So I'm curious as to what you think, like something akin to a what, diplomatic or not, like what actually would put a more decisive end to this conflict over a longer period of time? I, I, you know, I hate to say it, but I think the only way out of this that reduces the loss of life and, and best forecloses the possibility of a wider war is for Moscow to simply decide on what its end game, desired end game is, impose it militarily and present it to the West as a fait accompli. I think anything short of that, not only will keep the Ukrainians dying with, with, with this, this regime in Kiev willing to throw more and more men into the meat grinder just to, just to keep the war going at the behest of its Western masters, um, I think that also preserves the possibility of escalation and that something, whether it's a false flag, it's a dirty bomb, it's uh, the introduction of directly Western forces, somehow keeps open the prospect of a wider war that would then become possibly um, uncontainable uh, in terms of escalation to ultimately to the nuclear level. And I, and I realize the Russians are probably loath to impose a military solution for fear of triggering a Western response. I think that risk is actually far less than the cautious course that they've been pursuing. I, I, I think the, the quickest, easiest, and less, least bloody outcome would be simply to impose a solution and to do it as quickly as possible. I don't know if they're thinking about that. I suspect they are not. Yeah, I'm afraid. I mean, I just feel for people living on, I mean, I just feel like I'm afraid that if the line is frozen where it is now, or if if any kind of peace negotiations yeah. start, we see, you know, those places seated, which would be, that was just such a blow to the to the perception of power in Russia, because those are legally, that those entire oblasts are Russian territory. So in theory, this is partially a war going on within Russia, according to well, the legal well, code. Conrad, let, let me give you, let me give you my, 
let me give you my real nightmare scenario. And I hear this from various people is that the uh, oligarchs in Moscow and the oligarchs in the West have the same interest, which would be a perpetual frozen conflict and a new Cold War, whatever the line of control is, so that they can be constantly generating more and more money and more and more uh, mobilization to face the eternal threat coming from the other side. And we go back to the situation that obtained from 1945 to 1991, and that the elites on both sides are perfectly happy with that. I'm not saying that's the case, but I've heard that idea floated. Well, I would encourage everybody to listen to episode 11 of Ether Hour. We discuss that very thing, as well as even spicier takes that you're not going to be able to hear on YouTube about the elites in Russia and what they may or may not want to get out of this conflict. But that was some great stuff mm -hmm. on Russia, Ukraine. I want to uh, move a little bit south. We've discussed this in the past few episodes, big things going on <laughs> in the Serbian world, you know, Serbia proper and its, you know, non-legally Serbian satellite states of entirely Serb population. And I want your thoughts, Jim, you are someone, you know, we've shared your appearances on, you know, Serbian language television before you've been there multiple times. I kind of want your, I've seen reports from certain Bosnians and Bosniaks that they feel that we're closer to a Bosnian war, another Bosnian war now than ever due to the actions of Dodik, the Serbska parliament, and kind of the current situation in Bosnia and Herzegovina. That, of course, I think also really does directly tie into the Kosovo question. And we've seen the US basically say that anything short of a secession move by Serbska will not get a reaction out of them. To you, does that mean that the US is spread thin and isn't willing to necessarily back you know, these Bosniak and the or Albanian Kosovar, these kind of Muslim people, these Muslim forces that are really trying to enforce the post 90s war status quo. You know, it, it's hard to tell. Um, I don't think there's anything that either Dodik or Republika Srpska parliament would do that would trigger a direct NATO action, as you say, uh, unless it was an actual secession from, uh, from Bosnia and Herzegovina. And I don't think they're really planning into doing that. I, I rather think that the concern is on the other side, that losing in Ukraine, that the, uh, the the global American empire or the gay, as we call it, might decide to try to push back somewhere else asymmetrically, whether it's in Kosovo, whether it's in Republika Srpska, to what extent there was a uh, Western hand behind these mass demonstrations against Vucic a few weeks ago. Vucic, of course, being you know no, nobody that anybody would call a pillar of strength, but at least he was not willing to go the final mile on behalf of the West, either on Kosovo or on sanctions on Ukraine. So it looked like there was a mobilization to try to dump him in favor of somebody who would be completely compliant. Uh, you know, and of course, we always have to fear the possibility of a pushback in some place like like Syria as well. Um, is as far as the long term goes, though, I think you're right that if the war continues to, in Ukraine to, to go the way it's going, where the international situation is perceived by the rest of the global community is not going in the West's favor, yeah, I think that does then create future possibilities, uh, not immediately, but in the future for both Republika Srpska and for Serbia as it comes. Uh, with respect to Kosovo. And I think that's one reason maybe the West does feel a little pressed too thin. Maybe they did tell Korti in Kosovo to pull back a little bit with his provocative moves in, in northern Kosovo. Um, I think I think it's a very fragile and unstable situation with neither side quite knowing how to proceed, but it remains very volatile. 
I think there is also the fear, and I'm just going off an article that came out yesterday in foreignpolicy.com where the article actually speaks about Dodik's actions and the, the fact that the EU may move to kind of, to, you know, the EU and NATO may pressure Dodik just a little bit in order to not allow any sort of ideas of secession to reach his mind because Bosnia and Herzegovina, how it's viewed in the West is very different. The Serbian Orthodox population is not viewed as the potential antagonist of, say, extra at least this from from these quotes is not viewed as the main issue the main issue seems to be the very religious bosnian muslim population which is kind of stuck in a between a rock and a hard place separated from the other muslim countries but also kind of in the middle of europe there right next to croatia and i'm just uh, the foreign, foreign policy quotes uh, french president emmanuel macron from 2019 where he essentially says bosnia is a time bomb that's ticking right next to croatia and which faces the problem of returning jihadists. And again, there's another quote from uh, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban from 2021, where he says, uh, you know, the challenge of Bosnia is how to integrate a country of 2 million Muslims into Europe. So I guess Bosnia technically is the only purely Muslim country belonging to the EU, you know, besides Albania. But yeah, there is that consideration of Europe, especially with the recent um, riots occurring in France. How do you not upset the Muslims of Bosnia? You know, and the one thing that would probably trigger mass riots and you know, essentially, possibly a civil conflict in that region, Bosnia Herzegovina, would be a secession movement. So, in fact, the uh, I guess it would perhaps uh, the position of the EU against Dodik or against Dodik's sort of potential succession claims would be not even uh, as an anti-Serbian action, but also as a self-preserving act of like just keeping the peace. We don't need another civil war within Europe at the moment between Serbian Orthodox folks and the uh, Bosnian Muslims, at least at this point. Perhaps maybe that's the gamble here. Yeah, it's a very rickety structure, and the, and, and the West has invested itself in maintaining that structure. It's inherently unstable, and everybody knows it. So I think that's why you see a lot of sort of muddling along on all sides and Dodik pushing against the limits, and the other side not quite sure knowing where to draw the line. Yeah, I think in general, like you said, Dimitri, the uh, like you saw with Kurti, like you said, Jim, like it seems in a lot of these places, it's the Muslims that are pushing the limits to what the West is actually comfortable with. Because look, for better or for worse, Dodik isn't like leading a military into Bosnia or you know uh, holding sham elections. He's just uh, saying he doesn't want to listen to a more Muslim court, and he's not even explicitly saying what laws will or will not be not will or will not be you know kind of enforced or not whereas kurti you know i don't whenever these western figures go they don't even meet with him anymore they sit down with the pred like the president the head of state supposedly quote unquote of kosovo instead of kurti and now he's been like sanctioned and everything so there definitely is this sort of uh well i think in general as you know serbia has kind of had to waffle between the west and its desire to join the eu and its historic ties with russia that the kosovar albanians felt emboldened in fully getting a deal from Serbia and getting it. And they didn't even want to, you know, rehold those elections in those Northern municipalities where Biden and these other forces are now coming out and saying, no, you need to have elections in these places, you know, and the stuff that he never wanted to do. So I think you're right that the Bosniaks and the Kosovar Albanians in both of these places are in many ways more of the problem in the eyes of the West. But that doesn't mean that that doesn't provoke a reaction from Serbian nationalists and in general, I think um, we still haven't seen exactly how 
Russian Serbian relations are going to come out at the end of all this. I think it's still up in the air. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's right. And and I, I'm glad that Dimitri mentioned too the fragility of Western sentiments when it comes to the Islamic factor in a place like France, because let's face it, that was always one of the drivers behind U.S. and NATO intervention in the Balkans. I can remember when Tom Lantos, who was then the chairman of the House of International Affairs Committee, was saying that we need to push forward with Kosovo independence and to show the Islamic world that we're four square behind the creation of a second uh, Muslim state in the very heart of Europe. I mean, it was promoting Islam in Europe was a direct motivating factor for American foreign policy and for Western foreign policy at that time. And given what's happening in France with these migrants and these essentially foreign as elements, largely Islamic, some African burning the whole damn country down. And uh, and, and the, the fear of the French state that it's being destabilized. And I've even heard some talk that, you know, unlike a lot of the other European countries, the military actually matters still in France, that there is the prospect in France, if not in other countries, that some other people, if not Macron, may decide to say, okay, you're not going to do what needs to be done. We will. And and I think that that uh, uncertainty about the future uh, and trying to find some way not to inflame these people even more than they are, it represents a very genuine fear on the part of, of some European leaders. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think there is also the... Uh... Just the inherent fear of well, the Muslim factor. How could it be, for example, used by you know the main culprit, the main bad guy, the Hitler of the story, which is you know Vladimir Putin? We saw of the Sweden Quran burnings. The Russian state at least took that to its utmost extreme, where they had uh, representatives of United Russia, you know, Orthodox people standing up in Parliament claiming that well, this burning of the Quran is an inappropriate act by Sweden. You know, the Swedish have crossed the line, legalizing it and not put you know not prosecuting this particular. Um, extremist in Sweden who's burning the Quran in front of the Turkish embassy, and the Russians really took this to to its PR, uh, to its PR peak. You know they've milked the situation, and it's you know the, you know Putin did uh, go to Dagestan in order to meet with the Muslim community there and to visit the oldest mosque in Russia, which is pretty cool in Derbent, which you know probably goes back all the way to the Khazar Khaganate or you know Lord knows you know one of the earliest mosques in the Northern Caucasus region. So it that was a pretty cool visit, and you know. Pros and cons, of course, included we spoke about in the previous episodes, but nevertheless, it did show solidarity of Russia with the Muslim world. And in fact, you know, that solidarity can be questioned based on the fact that, well, Erdogan's actions recently, including Sweden in NATO, or at least vouching for them and kind of ignoring the entire Quran burning debacle, does show that perhaps uh, Turkey as a Muslim country really doesn't mind this sort of anti-Muslim rhetoric as long as it can receive its sort of as long as it can receive some sort of utilitarian uh, benefits for its own sovereignty and its own national interest, then perhaps some of these grievances against Islam could be set aside because, look, we have to face it. The the bigger picture is at stake here probably for Erdogan. That's how he views it. So, you know, these small grievances about the burning of Qurans. I mean, how much does it really matter when, when uh, you know, when the Turks fight the Kurds and there's the bombing of different villages? How many Qurans burn in those, uh, you know, uh, tank and air raids, right? You have to think about it in that capacity. So it is a bit hypocritical how they're up in arms about the yeah, burning of the Quran publicly when Iraq and Iran go to war against each other. How many Qurans were burnt in that conflict when a tank, you know, accidentally shoots a house or, you know, how many copies of the Quran burn in that house? You know, there's all these interesting considerations, which I suppose we Orthodox Christians never really mentioned. You know, no, nobody really mentioned how many Bibles were burnt in the special, special military operation. But, 
you know, uh, I guess the the fact the fact of the matter is there is a sphere. I think in Europe, uh, sort of covertly behind the scenes, they are discussing the fact that Russian, the the Russian FSB, the Russian intelligence could potentially use the Muslim factor, and as they should, I think Russia should utilize any sort of tools that it can in order to fight its enemy at the moment because it is a it is an all out almost Cold War like state of the West and a hot war in Ukraine, and in order to utilize some of these pro Islamic sentiments and to cause destabilization in the back lines. Like, I think that's not completely off the table. I think that's uh, a legitimate strategy which they fear Russia could be using, at least in some capacity. And so, um, yeah, I, 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 yeah. I, yeah, Dimitri, I, I really... I really have to disagree with you about this on, on, on two points. One is we've certainly seen enough over the last few decades of the Western world using, using jihadists as a weapon against the Orthodox countries. And I, and I think this is a totally despicable strategy on their part, uh, totally immoral that, it, it, that, you know, despite the fact that there are differences between Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, we still belong to the same uh, Christian civilization, or at least in the West, post-Christian civilization. The idea that you would sick jihadists on fellow Christians or even post-Christians or people belong to, to what had been a Christian civilization, it just strikes to me as something just despicable and immoral under any circumstance. And I know they do it, but I don't think the Orthodox should do it. As far as the idea of visiting mosques or objecting to the burning of Qurans and so forth, yeah, I understand that Russia today, especially given its very large Muslim population, the fact you have Chechens and others fighting uh, in the Russian forces in Ukraine and so forth, has a kind of like you might call a, an empire mentality. It's similar to the way the, the Russian, the British and the French and the German and the other empires in the 19th century had Muslim forces. And you had, you know, because of their colonial possessions, and they had to show some decent respect for the people on uh, within their, 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 um, their imperial uh, purview. And I do understand that. But I also don't like the idea that here I am, a free man in a free state, or at least one that used to be a free state, being told that I must be observe Islamic blasphemy rules. I can't burn a Quran because, oh, somebody would object to it to somewhere. What, I, what's next? I can't insult Muhammad. I can't say he's a false prophet. What's next that I, I am not allowed to do I, you know, it's not like anybody's going to impose any penalties for blasphemy against Christianity or against the Bible or against Jesus Christ, but I can't insult Muhammad or I can't burn a Quran. So, you know, I don't agree with this. I understand why the Russians take that position because it, it's, it's the, the lay of the land in their own country. But the idea that they're going to exploit uh, a, a violation of, of the freedom to criticize, and I'll be honest about it, a false religion and a false prophet and a false book, uh, I, I don't find I don't find it all congenial. And the idea that you're gonna you're gonna arm these uh, maniacs to go do evil things against other Christians at a time when you know we get daily reports of you know, for example, Christians being hacked to death in places like Nigeria and all over uh, the, the the third world, I, I that that just doesn't sit well with me, Dimitri. No, I completely agree. I and I'm not of that position either. Like I, I in fact tweeted a lot, and we have spoken of Quran. My position was always uh, on the more skeptical side towards this pro-Islamic rhetoric coming out of the Kremlin, as well as you know the the domestic political end. And in terms of foreign policy, that strategy hasn't been used yet by Russia, and I hope it doesn't get used because the, not neither the Byzantine Empire nor the Russian Empire have used strategies of this sort. It, there's nothing orthodox about it. You know, promoting 
um, destabilization, even if you call it spycraft or FSB tactics or, you know, foreign intelligence, mm-hmm. uh, sort of, it, it really isn't a strategy which we could, it does cross an ethical line for us and a moral line. Now, whether or not this ethical and moral line exists in the uh, collegium of the FSB officers or whether or not this these ethics are taught in their schools, which, you know, so there's some indication that perhaps, um, you know, they view ethics through different sort of lens, which, you know, uh, we, but uh, I yeah, just think it yeah. should be seen as a potential. If if the Kremlin does, if the SMO does go into in a negative, I suppose if, if there if there are negative outcomes, perhaps, and it's not even us Orthodox Christians that are pro this. We are in fact uh, for proper ethical warfare. You know, as as much as ethical warfare could be done, but there is this consideration that well, not everybody in the Kremlin, I suppose, is as churched as say the three of us are, or even are. They have that orthodox mindset of well let's do things cleanly in fact there may still be some of that dirty old soviet soviet uh tactics left there you know similar to what happened in afghanistan when they tried to poison amin uh, an entire you know twice on two occasions and then they ended up you know entering into afghanistan and starting a special military operation there this sort of bizarre um uh footsie with uh certain foreign elements such as you know muslims even it's it's i don't think it's entirely off the table only because, only because, well, times are really desperate, and in fact, the Ukraine have shown themselves quite openly yeah. uh, assassinating Russian spokespersons with Vladlan Tatarsky, Daria Dugina, and recently, um, they assassinated Stanislav Ruzhitsky in Krasnodar region, who was just jogging, and a Ukrainian spy came up to him and shot him several times out of with a Makarov small Makarov pistol, and he, had, Stanislav Ruzhitsky, was the chief mobilization officer in Krasnodar is just to the east of the uh, Kerch Bridge. So it's a bridge that connects Crimea to the Russian mainland. So the Ukrainians are openly, uh, you know, sort of doing this uh, spycraft, tactical, uh, covert ops all over the Russian territories. And we don't see Russia necessarily do that much. I mean, you know, they, there's claims that Russia's kind of assisted, you know, Donald Trump in the election and there's weird machinations on the IT end, but we don't necessarily see Russia actively get involved in say, Western politics or Western uh, sort of disassociation on the ground, sort of destabilization tactics. And in fact, I'm, I'm just considering, would would the Kremlin be down for that based on their rhetoric, based on their pro-Muslim um, stances recently, which I frankly don't agree with. I think that entire visit to Dagestan and, you know, I think that's the visit is okay, but the whole statement about the Quran and, you know, the anti-blasphemy laws, I agree, it's just, it's very bizarre. That's unprecedented never existed in any orthodox country prior it's um it is a very kind of new sort of thing which hopefully doesn't last for too long you know there's this trend of respecting the muslims to the point of of this semi semi ecumenism i think it's probably the wrong the wrong way to go about things yeah especially at a time when we see for example at not only did we talk about earlier this impending 2025 between uh, Constantinople and Rome, but Rome, of course, moving beyond ecumenism towards syncretism, this this Abrahamic center in Abu Dhabi with a mosque and a synagogue as well as a church. I mean, that's you know what that's what's in the air, and uh, I don't I don't think we in, in the Orthodox world want any part of it. Yeah, I don't think we need to look. I have no problem having a political and economic understanding with the Islamic world against, you know, the GAE, what some might refer to as Zog or whatever, but that doesn't, that really should never entail any kind of, you know, I think we should hope Assad becomes Orthodox, not stay as a weird hybrid Muslim Orthodox, I guess what we could say. And I think what Dimitri was saying before about legitimate actions, as far as I'm aware, 
the only actual action I actually have some evidence of Russia funding was the Quran burnings in Sweden to keep Turkey, you know, uh, supporting Sweden staying out of NATO, which I don't know if I, I don't necessarily support those actions. I think the Quran burnings by sus characters in Sweden themselves aren't necessarily necessary, but you know, maybe that that's somewhat of an interesting strategy if you're going to play, you know, psyop games. But that leads me to the question, Jim. You're talking about these Muslim states within Europe, and that was the whole goal of part one of the big goals of the whole Balkan intervention mm-hmm. project. That was really kind of the you can almost say the I kind of see it as a mini version of the SMO in Ukraine, as well as kind of the precursor to you know the whole post 9-11 Middle East. And now Turkey supposedly has been granted this you know, super likely chance of joining the EU and everything. I'm wondering your thoughts on that and how it, because I wrote an article just like a few hours before that was announced saying that this idea that Turkey could be part of the EU, even for the, even for the anti-national, anti-civilizational people that run the EU is still just such a silly idea. Turkey is not Europe. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I I agree with you. I don't see any circuit. And and I assume that uh, that Erdogan understands this quite well himself. He may have tried to extort some kind of a, a guarantee of an expedited process, but he knows it's not going to happen. I think he's going to use that. I mean, look, he's a very slippery character. He's very adroit at extorting things out of people. And I think he will simply, he'll simply use that commitment as another IOU that he can keep pounding the desk with and getting more concessions on other matters that are important to him. Uh, he always has, of course, the migrant bomb that he can unleash at any time, which he does sporadically. As we see the Syria war not wind down, which I think it will continue to do, you know he's 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 probably going to alter his his the specifics of his operation a little differently he won't have quite as many syrians on his territory but there's there's going to be no shortage of afghans and pakistanis and god knows who else from the rest of uh of asia and south asia coming through turkey wanting to get into europe so that's that's a game he could continue to play for a very long time but at the same time, it, if, if things do continue to go the way they're going in Ukraine, whether they go slowly or quickly, as we've been discussing, I do think we're going to see the weakening of both NATO and the European Union and hopefully the collapse of both. I think Erdogan is smart enough to know that actually getting into the EU, EU for Turkey is no prize. And it's just something that he can use as, as leverage in his pressuring on Europe. Yeah, I think the hesitancy as well of Europe, of course, allowing Turkey, I mean, this is the main consideration of why even Ukraine joining the EU could shake things up is because you receive this large labor base, this uh, essentially this potential cheap labor force, right? You could just say it openly, like blue collar labor essentially is inflated to the point of, well, um, they're going to compete with native Europeans and then, uh, you know, it's going to shake up the economy. And can Europe afford to uh, to you know, afford to have these people immigrate over without a visa regime and sort of participate in the markets, which is for listeners, which is probably the main consideration. Turkey's large population. This has been the main uh, detraction of Europe from actually allowing Turkey to join the EU. So you know, all those decades ago, and so this has been the the issue. And er- of course, Erdogan and his predecessors have all have always sort of argued, and all the politicians in Turkey have always argued that this wouldn't be a problem. And Turkey is in fact you know, a part of Europe and that entire Ottoman legacy, it does have, you know, something a lot, you know, not just something, but it does have a certain uh, European connection that, you know, they can't really be you know, segregated away off to the side in in, in the Middle East and Asia. But um, 
what I found very interesting was, uh, and we spoke about this last week, Jim, just the idea that Erdogan, he, we kind of see him as the secular ruler who, you know, plays around with Islam and he is a Sunni Muslim himself. But how does, how do, do you, do you think he has any idea about what's happening between the Vatican or between Bartholomew and the church in Ukraine, the schism? Because him inviting Zelensky and Zelensky appearing in the Fanar on that ecclesiological end, of course, uh, you know, the Metropolitan, the, the Archbishop of Macedonia being there too, but again, being sidelined slightly, you know, him not sitting in a prominent position, even though he's a new, I suppose, a newly reunited Orthodox hierarch, he wasn't giving any attention. They didn't even have them, mm -hmm. they didn't even have them fully vested as bishops, like they were just partially, partially vested. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is this idea that perhaps Erdogan, again, as you yes, say. Yes, and I don't yeah. know, I, 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 first of all, I don't know if the Fanar has formalized its recognition of the Macedonian church. Uh, that whole episode strikes me as rather odd that I know some of my Serbian friends passed it off as this great clever move on the part of Belgrade. I couldn't quite figure out what was so clever about it, that a, a part of the Serbian church that had been schismed for decades, then is they suddenly turn around, granted autocephaly, and that somehow is a big triumph for Belgrade. I don't quite see it. But anyway, uh, I don't know what exactly Constantinople's position is on that. I would not guess that internal politics of the Orthodox Church loom that large in Erdogan's calculation. I think it's one of the, probably the smaller things he takes note of with regard to the big picture of what's going on. I think his big play is within the Islamic world and specifically within the Sunni world. You know, remember one, one of the things we've been seeing for the, quite some years had been a rivalry between Turkey and Saudi Arabia as the as the big big daddy, big sponsor of the Sunnis in the same way that the Iranians are for the, the Shiite world. It's not quite clear where that is going right now. Uh, the, the whole dust up between Ankara and Riyadh over the killing of Khashoggi seems to be have, have died down quite a bit. Uh, it seems that MBS in Saudi Arabia is, is also tacking toward the Eurasian camp in the same way that Erdogan is. And it seems that the, the conflict between Ankara and Riyadh is not as sharp as it had been. So I, I think there's a lot of moving parts there of which the internal politics of the Orthodox Church are the least of Erdogan's concerns. I think the um, it's really interesting what you said about Turkey and the wants to. It, it is that battle in the in the Sunni world because Iran is the you know very obvious Shia power. I find it so interesting that Azerbaijan is Shia still. But the when it comes to uh, that, you talk about the Macedonian Church, Jim. I'm wondering. I, I want to get your take on it if you have a take. Is this your uh, is this your Greek bias against the name of the Macedonian Church coming out? And is because I think the only victory from my perspective is that it basically disproves the idea that only the EP can grant a tomos of autocephaly in the midst of all of the Ukraine stuff. That's what I saw it as a victory, at least. Yeah, yeah, that's what my Serbian friends say, and that, and to me, that seems pretty small beer. I mean, because if Constantinople takes Constantinople takes the position that okay, fine, you can grant the Belgrade, you can grant them autocephaly as you want, but it really doesn't count until we do. It's kind of like the the papal reception theory that the Roman Catholics have about ecumenical councils. Well, you can have a council, but until the Pope recognizes it, it's not a council. Well, that's the position that Constantinople is going to take with respect to uh, Macedonia. And uh, so I, I think that the Serbs have not really gained themselves anything. Uh, I don't know how many other churches have uh, said that they uh, accept the autocephaly 
of the Macedonian church. They, they now consider them canonical, but in a way, they're sort of in the same position that the OCA is in the United States. Everybody recognizes that the OCA is canonical, but I think other than Moscow, the only churches that have recognized its autocephaly are the Church of Poland and the Church of the Czech lands and Slovakia. And nobody else ever says, oh, that's a that's a that's an autocephalous church, that their primate gets uh, invited to the meetings of all the heads of the autocephalous churches. And that, that'll be the position that Constantinople takes toward uh, toward uh, Skopje. So I don't think that that's really going to make any difference. No, I don't have any particular beef with the whole Macedonia thing. I mean, this little <laughs> kabuki dance of, oh, big triumph for Athens. We've renamed uh, Macedonia North Macedonia, which is, I mean, uh, you know, the Greek position had been anything with the M word in it was beyond the pale. And then suddenly they turn around because Washington tells them to, because the Mitsotakis government is, of course, basically run from Washington that, OK, we'll accept it. But we put North in there. That's a great that's a great triumph. If anything, it seems to me that would make the problem worse, because doesn't that imply that there's a South Macedonia? Uh, that I guess would be, uh, you know, uh, terra, terra irredenta that uh, the North Macedonia would want to claim. I don't see how the Greeks did themselves any favors of it with that, but it seems that they've sort of calmed down on that themselves. Well, I'm just curious, Jim, you are a, a well, a well-versed man in the history department. I'm wondering, you know, we talk about that a lot on the show and I always hear it's a people, I always get called a communist if I'm against the, uh, by certain Greeks, if I'm against the, uh, the harsh position on the name, but at the same time, look, I recognize Alexander the Great was not a, uh, Slav resembling of Bulgarian. You know, I'm not going that far, but if you want to, Jim, you don't have to. Of oh, course, no, 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 Conrad, like a... you, Conrad, you don't know. <laughs> Conrad, you don't know. He was an Albanian. His mother was Albanian. <laughs> the, the, the Albanian ambassador in Washington told me that to my face. Because his mother was from uh, from Epirus, uh, and because Epirus was had some Illyrians, though, even though she was a Greek, uh, he, that means Alexander the Great was Albanian. So uh, you know, or uh, I'm sure half the Serbs will tell you he's a Serb. So I mean, look, they, you know, you know how silly Balkan people can be about these things. Uh, I, I I don't have a real bee in my bonnet about this. Oh, my take, of course, Constantine, known Serb. But uh, if you want, I was just wondering if you wanted to give a bit of a history on why it's controversial. I was wondering if you wanted to give history on why it's so controversial that this is a thing at all. Well, because I think that what it boils down to is a couple of factors. One is the difference between an ethnonym and a toponym. Uh, an ethnonym, of course, being the name of a distinct people claiming to be a nation, which the Macedonians in Macedonia claim they are, whereas the Bulgarians and Serbs claim that they're really Bulgarians and Serbs, respectively, uh, or the Greeks mm -hmm. would say they're, they're Slavic-speaking Greeks, or whatever that's supposed to be. And then, of course, then there's <laughs> the, you have the toponym that you have a region called Macedonia, about half of which is in Greece, about a third of which is in the Republic, and about a sixth is in the Pyrian region of Bulgaria. And of course, then that relates to how things fell out between the Greeks, the Serbs, and the Bulgarians during the Balkan Wars of 1912 and 1913. And the fact that Bulgarians mm -hmm. felt they got cheated out of their fair share. And look, you know, it, 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 a lot of this has to do with what we were discussing just a minute ago, is if you start out with this hard and fast notion that everything is Greek or everything is Serbian or everything is Albanian or everything is Bulgarian and every, all of history needs to be rewritten with my ethnic agenda in mind, 
obviously those 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 agendas come into conflict rather than accepting the fact yeah there are people in living in the republic of north macedonia as it's called this week who consider themselves ethnic macedonians not serbs not bulgarians and that's just what they are and you know and and, and whether you know in fact i you know i've had macedonians from macedonia tell me oh no no macedonians are a distinct nation going all the way back to alexander the great you know there are language there are words in the modern macedonian language that are not found in bulgarian or serbian that are only found in ancient macedonian and of course they have the same kind of ethnic uh, projection and history that the Greeks and the Serbs and the Bulgarians and the Albanians and the rest of them do and frankly i guess i just don't have a lot of patience for that i guess i'm not a very good greek and uh, i mean who who can blame you jim because at at the end of the day no matter how many history books or books on the history of culture you do read there's always the other guy who's read the exact same amount but of of books but they speak about history of say the balkans or this or that you know particular country and but it, all the books are written from a completely different perspective that's kind of what i found essentially because i've I've always been of the view that alexander the great was a greek but uh, again macedon was a bit on the fringes of the greek world and there was this distinct other language which he spoke mm-hmm. with his officers yeah. and generals which was the ancient macedonian tongue which again I don't even believe we've translated properly to this day. Even the ancient Macedonian graves, it's not Slavic that's written there. Maybe, you know, we're not even quite sure. It's some this yeah. lost language which they spoke back in the day. But, you know, they did consider themselves Greek and Hellenism was spread. So that's kind of indisputable. It wasn't Slavism that was spread all over uh, the Middle East and, uh, you know, Asia all the way to India. But nevertheless, um, there is this uh, interesting perspective that, well, this sort of Balkan infighting, which may seem, you know, trivial, trivial and novel, but it has actually... It turned into all right, you know, outright wars. You've spoken about Orthodox countries fighting each other. And, you know, I, I almost feel like Washington actually has this playbook of, well, how do we turn various, uh, how do we, you know, cause balkanization? Maybe that's kind of the position in, you know, in, in Russia, Ukraine. It's this idea that, well, Ukrainians will create their own history and they'll kind of amorph- amorphize it and uh, create it out of this artificial foundation, which, you know, is kind of baseless. And notice again how it's almost completely disconnected from the church. It's almost like you have to push it as far away from orthodoxy as possible, which, again, in this in this particular Balkan debate, it would be interesting for me to see which Balkan country strays strays further away from orthodox Christian history as possible. Like, would you would they base their nation on, say... What the saints wrote about it, or would they base their nation on these ideas of this ancient, some sort of ancient BC pre Christian uh, theory of nationhood, right? Um, on ancient texts and ancient archaeological evidence rather than, oh, say, oh, abso- how the church ab- story. Ab- yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not only pre Christian, but also with the real meddling of political powers. I mean, one thing we didn't touch on with the Vatican and Constantinople is the role of the CIA and political powers and intelligence services in managing all of this. And and this is clearly one of the things we find at work, not only in the Balkans, but as you say, Dimitri, in, in places like Ukraine and uh, in Russia. Where does the modern Ukrainianist, if you can call it that, a national ideology comes from. It comes essentially from Vienna, the Austrian Empire, the Ukrainian six riflemen during World War One. this kind of radical notion of Ukraine that defines itself as not only not Russian in broad sense, Rus, 
but uh, against Russia. And, um, you know, I, I remember I had a, a teacher at the Foreign Service Institute. I was still with the State Department. He was Ukrainian, but he was teaching Russian language then. And he not only insisted that Ukrainians were not Russian or not related to the Russians, but were genetically and racially different, different from the Russians, that they belonged to an ancient ethnos that had no connection whatsoever to the Russians or Slavs at all. And of course, then one time I met his brother and I said, hey, do you agree with your, what you're he says about uh, about Ukrainians, and he shrugs his shoulders. And he says, "I don't know. I'm Russian." So here, here's the guy's own brother, uh, and he says, genetically, are not even related to the Russians, saying he himself is a Russian. And and I think you will find this, for example, in the uh, creation of an Albanian state in 1912 after the first Balkan War, when most Albanians had no idea of nationhood. They were gigs, they were tosks, they belonged to different tribes, they were constantly having a, a few blood feuds with one another. The idea that they were, a, quote, a nation was the last thing that would have occurred to any of them. And so I think you'll find with a lot of these things, you know, whether it's the, the Ustasha ideology of Croatia and how that relates to the Serbs and to the Bosnian Muslims, I think you'll find if you dig deep enough in a lot of these, it doesn't necessarily go back to the dim recesses of prehistory. It goes back to what have some smart guys in Berlin or Vienna or Washington or London or someplace else concocted in order to advance their political agendas and to create artificial national concepts that they can then use as uh, as tools to accomplish their various goals. That kind of leads, that kind of ties so into the idea that we talk about so many times on this show that, look, we see with Russia, Ukraine was carved away and this ethnos was created. We see the same with Serbia. It was taken away, land was taken from the Bosnians, land was taken by, you know, the whole Montenegro thing that all got taken away. The nationality is built up. It seems that in a lot of ways, you know, these these national identities are very much built up around orthodox countries. It's like it's like the last vestiges of the of the empire that has long not been the empire anymore are still being balkanized more and more and more and more as the as the world, I guess, just chips away at it. And of course, Russia kind of, you know, I guess Russia's done their version of it supposedly in Georgia. But my perspective is that while the US goes seeking it out, Russia like begrudgingly has to cave in to these to these groups on its periphery for I, that's how I consider it went with the Donbass, you know, considering how long they held out without any direct assistance. But of course, I try to stay neutral on the whole Georgia, Abkhazia, Ossetia situation. It's a bit more complicated, but it's just such it's a playbook that just goes back to, you know, the the British Empire and the US. It's just such an old playbook that's been used to take down larger states that are deemed regional or worldwide powers rivaling, you know, the GAE. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, and by the way, when it comes to the Balkans and, and, and Ukraine and the other places, let's not lose sight, too, of the kind of uh, even the political and, and uh, even spiritual influences that were very current in the um, 19th century and the role of Freemasonry in concocting modern political identities for these people that you know, the people themselves had no idea of these things, you know, even even in places like Greece, where in the 1820s at the time of the revolution, the Greeks, if you called them Hellenes, Greeks, they would have thought you were, why, why are you insulting me? Why are you calling me a pagan? I'm Romeikos, we are Orthodox Christians. But what you saw in the 19th century, you saw in Greece and in uh, Romania, certainly I think to a great extent in Serbia and Bulgaria, is westernized uh, political elites, uh, very many of whom were Freemasons, 
trying to come up with a modern political ideology and modern political identity that that fit in with the the kind of the French revolutionary concept of what a nation was. And I think that's a legacy that comes down to us to this very day. Oh, totally. And I think the Freemason connection can't be overstated. And we know Jim is more, we talk about it on the show, how we were mentioning the calendar issue earlier. I mean, that whole issue came about because of a certain Freemason. And I think when it comes to all of that, I mean, Greek politics in general, Jim already said that, you know, the Mitsotakis government is basically one run from Washington. We see him win an election with right-wing parties coming into the parliament and then immediately pledge to legalize gay marriage within the country. And that all of, the, all, of course, when it comes to Greek politics, it's not as much of an issue. We talked about it on the Turkish politics side. Both sides, their left and right, quote unquote, are united on their opposition to Greece or Turkey, whichever side you're on. So that's not necessarily a big issue. However, geopolitically, it does tie into the politics of NATO. I guess before we start wrapping up, Jim, I wanted to guess, get your your thoughts on the latest elections in Greece and the state of Greek politics. Well, I was in Greece uh, in November of last year, and uh, I got to know the people in one of the political parties there called Niki, means victory. It's one of the three small uh, conservative uh, parties uh, with a patriotic agenda. Uh, Niki, I think of the three of them, has the most specifically orthodox agenda. And and I don't think that's anything to sneeze at, that they got into the parliament. In fact, those three parties together make up a bigger percentage of the Greek parliament than the AFD does in the in the German Bundestag. So they are a force. Now, you mentioned uh, Mitsotakis and same-sex marriage. I, I, I didn't check to see the news to see where that stands right now, whether he was able to get that through or will be able to get that through. I hope that's something that can be stopped. As far as I know, no, no Orthodox country has, has recognized same-sex marriage, although some of them have recognized, I believe Greece has, so-called civil partnerships. Um, but let, let's, let's face it, as, as I've written extensively, the the this the sexual perversion this uh, saving the world through degeneracy is something that's very high on the list of the western powers to use as a weapon against more traditional societies mostly the ones that were under communism during the cold war not just in the orthodox countries but in the in the uh, in the uh, roman catholic countries and even the eastern part of germany which was always traditionally protestant there's a lot of resistance to this kind of garbage uh, but I, I don't think we can underestimate the extent to which this is part of the ideological and moral and spiritual warfare that the that the gay, uh, aptly named gay, wages against traditional Christian societies. And it's sad that we do have collaborationist governments in the in the Orthodox countries, including Greece. Yeah, I think it's somewhat um, somewhat unavoidable to not be influenced, especially if your nation, you know, such a uh, country such as Romania or Greece, you know, if you are members of both NATO and the EU proper, then there really isn't. Uh, I suppose it's really almost impossible to avoid being influenced by these sort of uh, degenerate movements from abroad. It's just, and I suppose it is a testament to the Romanian and Greek people and other Orthodox nations that they aren't influenced to the point of, say, actually legalizing such, you know, weird, uh, weird uh, de degenerate movements of the modern world, because, well, the, the pressure on them, both economically and politically, is immense. But it, again, it is very interesting. We spoke about this last week pretty, pretty in depth, but it would be interesting for Greece to sort of, as it, as it kind of comes to this head where the Orthodox Church won't be able to at least digest this, this next wave of degenerate innovation that's brought on by the culture of uh, by the culture of the west it will be interesting to exactly see how mm -hmm. the church reacts on a political scale in greece how the archbishopric 
of Athens will you know react politically like will they allow Mithoxakis if he does push for this legalization or a referendum of some sort will they accept him into communion will there still be this uh collaboration which you know in Greece there has been this uh the semi-symphonia happening at least since the um since the Greek revolution where the you know the, the parliament and the and the Greek authorities and the, the Greek king even on one hand when Greek was when Greece was still a monarchy the Greek king cooperated with the archbishop of Athens quite actively and now even the parliament you know invites bishops sometimes to to sit there and uh, witness certain presentations so it is the interaction between church and state is quite yeah, strong, yeah. which, you know, I wish Russia was like this because, you know, it would benefit greatly from having uh, more of an orthodox presence in, in the Russian Duma, but uh, albeit uh, I think we're still not there yet. But nevertheless, it would be interesting to see exactly how far yeah. these Greek politicians could push the uh, could push the envelope before the church says no. You know, we're going to stop right here, and you'll have someone like Seraphim of Kafiro who stood up against vaccines, simply you know, raise his head, and is he's willing to go to prison for his views. You know, so yeah, it is a it it is yeah yeah. Sort and, of and of course, yeah. as you know, I'm not an ecumenist, but this is where I think we do have an investment in a broader European Christian civilization. For example, you know, look at a guy like Viktor Orban, who's a Protestant. His family is Roman Catholic, but they've drawn the line on this LGBT stuff, and even. Uh, have passed a law which has gotten them the enmity of the EU uh, that basically is not that different from the Russian law about uh, LGBT propaganda toward children, which, of course, in Russia now has been expanded to uh, all any propaganda, not just directed against minors. So I, I think there is a possibility of some kind of healthy resistance uh, of, you know, let's let's face it, this even goes not beyond orthodoxy, but even beyond Christianity. I mean, you look at the way the rest of the world, even the non-Christian world, uh, reacts to lot this 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 promotion of depravity by the Western governments and just just normal human instinct uh, rebels against this kind of agenda that is a direct attack on on any religion, on on family, on uh on, on on marriage that uh, does any normal concept of human life, and so I I think there's something that I hope can be promoted uh, in 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 Europe and in, in the United States and in Christian countries, even in non-Christian countries that can can push back against this stuff. And, and of course, the form that takes is going to be different according to the history and culture and religion of those countries. Yeah, it's very much this. Um, it, I think it may serve to be their undoing because so many countries that you know. They, they didn't necessarily have any interest they didn't necessarily have any immediate interest in abandoning the kind of uni, unipolar project but now they see this all being forced upon them are perhaps much more eager to look at alternatives so I think you know maybe it will maybe their hubris will will be their undoing but I think we're about to wrap up here but we've talked yeah. a lot about the yeah. GAE I want to uh get your thoughts on the presidential election in my perspective, if he's allowed to be on the ballot and no crazy funny business happens, Trump has the Republican nomination in the bag. We saw this latest, this blaze summit or whatever with all the non-Trump candidates being grilled by Tucker Carlson. And he's basically just proving that they're all neocons. Um, I'm wondering your thoughts on the state of on the state of that race, Jim. I agree with you. I think Trump is the odds on favorite. I think that's why the other side is so desperate to try to take him out one way or the other by the so-called lawfare. Um, you know, that basically these indictments and prosecutions and so forth. Uh, I will say this, though. Uh, I think uh, Trump, is, at, as things stand now, is almost certain to be the Republican nomination, uh, nominee. 
I don't see any way he could possibly win. I know there are people who disagree with me on Twitter and elsewhere that they look at the numbers and this and that. Uh, you know, call, call me overly cynical. I just don't think we have any like fair elections left in this country. And given the way the presidential election works in this country, uh, where you you know basically only about a dozen states are in play, and you have to win the swing states, if you can just keep them off the ballot in a couple of key states, I'm frank, frankly, if you keep him off the ballot in Pennsylvania, it's all over. He, there's simply no way numerically he can win. And uh, and even if he does, is on the ballot in some of these states, I think all they have to do is say, hey, Philadelphia, we need 25,000 more votes and they'll get them. So uh, I, I think one way or the other, if he is the nominee, there's no way he can win no matter who the Democratic nominee. And by the way, I don't think Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee. I don't, I don't know who will be at this point. My guess would be probably Gavin Newsom. I don't know how they pull that rabbit out of the hat, but that's what I expect to happen. In any case, um, you know, I agree with you entirely, Conrad. Trump will be the nominee unless they find some way to take him out before that. And, uh, and But even if he is the nominee, I don't think he can win. And even by some miracle, he did win. I think his second term would be as dismal a show with you know another s word in front of it that that as as his first term was and that nothing good will come of it just because he will be stymied at every turn and his appointments will be as bad or worse as his first term appointments would be yeah i think you'd agree with me on this jim that a lot of us in in so far as we quote unquote support trump see it as like truly just like a way to i don't want to say accelerate but as a way to just kind of get the get the get the history moving along more than just get the like like at this point we're like let's just get to the next stage of history in this whole in this whole debacle and i guess trump is the only it's the only option you have if that's what you support because supporting anything else would just see a return to the center which uh, just disgusts me to even think about exactly you've got you've got the 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 civic nationalists the normies who really think they can still vote their way out of this mess and to me, Trump is essentially one thing I do agree with Trump. And he says they're not after me. They're after you. They just have to get through me to get to you. That Trump is kind of an, an avatar of the historic American nation, the deplorables. You know, the you know, how do you describe, you know, white English speaking uh, Christian ethnos that is at the core of the United States. And uh, th- that's what really scares the ruling classes, which is built on the kind of the coalition of the fringes. And it's basically what he represents, the people whom he represents that need to be defeated and destroyed. And that's why they worry about him so much. He's kind of a mobilizing factor for those people. And and, and that's where his value is as well. Now, at what point do those people realize that the American Republic is dead? There are no real elections left in this country. And the real question is what comes next? after the American Republic, and is there a future for the historic American people? And that's where I think things are going to come to a head in 2024, whether it's in the form of an election or something else, I don't know. I completely agree with both of you, and I, I do think whether or not the elections will be fair, most likely not, based on the previous elections, but I, I do think Trump allowing Trump to actually take the presidency again for fair elections would simply not be on the cards for the uh, the swamp and the military-industrial complex in the U.S. It's, it simply shakes too many things up. No. Trump has, he's too independent, he's too unruly, even though he does skip to the beat on certain subjects, but his particular rhetoric against NATO during his presidency, as well as his anti-Chinese uh, positions, which, you know, could shake things up if Washington ever accepts, you know, to 
provide give Taiwan to China through some sort of Hong, Hong Kong like deal. I think Trump's strong positions on certain foreign political subjects they do think throw a wrench in terms of the United States' presence in the world. And also Trump's uh, sort of really direct form of diplomacy, which we saw where he just meets Putin and kind of looks him in the eye and sits very straight. And like, it's very it's very different to how you know Biden, even Obama, and maybe even George Bush behaved. So Trump does have his own particular attitude to say foreign political as well as domestic uh, domestic aspects. And I think um, in terms of a more conspiratorial side, I do need to mention that I don't think the elites have still forgiven Trump for, you know, appointing all those Supreme Court justices and having Roe v. Wade overturned and having that whole abortion machine, that whole uh, mass murdering scheme, you know, stifled or put to a stop in certain states completely. I think that's still, there's still a vendetta against him for certain things of that nature. But nevertheless, I... I definitely think keeping a Democrat or keeping a uh, on-the-leash Republican in power would definitely be to the benefit of the grueling elites in the U.S. and, you know, the broader globe, if we're speaking about, you know, some globalist control over the United States. I definitely Yeah, think by the way, and, yeah. and, 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 if Trump, and if Trump is knocked out, I would not rule out that uh, DeSantis or somebody like that could be the nominee. And the, and the deep state, the powers that be, may actually decide to let him win. You know, Leninism, Leninism, one step forward, two steps back. Let's play the red card for a while and keep the con game going, where, where, where we still have firm control over the leather, levers of power on things that really matter. I could totally see that happening because, look, let's be honest, Israel wins either way, right? And then... Uh, and then once that what what that's taken care of, all that matters is releasing the valve in the in at home and preventing something like Trump, but mm -hmm. at a more advanced stage of a late stage democracy from happening again, because they know that if something like that happens again, the person might be brave enough to actually walk up those capital steps on a January sixth type situation. Yeah. I think that's uh you know, but I think uh I'll ask you one final question, Jim, if you have any perspective on it. It's no worries if you don't. I just think it's fun. We're going to wrap this up. Do you have a take on greater Idaho? <laughs> I really don't. I, I don't. I, I think we're past, <laughs> as I say, I think at this point, the question is civic versus ethnic in the future of America. I think the idea of shuffling around the deck chairs on American constitutional arrangements and so forth, I think that's that's a ship that sailed a long time ago. I agree. I'm still in favor of freeing those poor 380,000 Oregonians, though. I think if it could happen, it'd be it'd be pretty funny. <laughs> but sure. With all that, thank you very much, Jim. Everybody, be sure to follow Jim on Twitter at Jim Jatris. He has a great feed. You know, he's always talking about a lot of the stuff we're talking about here. So, if there's any last words you have, Jim, uh, let us hear them. No, I don't. Uh, I, I do want to say that I hope to publish later this this year my first and only book, which is a collection of my uh, past writings. I guess in my uh, in my advancing toward the uh, the uh, biblical three score and ten, I feel the need to lay down some kind of a marker of what had been my life, and uh, I hope to have, be able to say something about that later this year. That's amazing. I'm I'm sure we'll have we'll actually probably have an episode on right before that that either is published or when it is released, and we'll definitely have a breakdown and we'll be sure to read it and actually review the book, Jim, because uh, you know ha having all of your writings collected into one place. I mean, I I know a lot of authors overseas have done that in Russia, in particular, a lot of uh, 
pretty big figures in foreign policy and politics. It is almost like a like a personal memoir of works, but I yeah, I think we're looking forward to it. And your takes are always appreciated. You know, your opinions on Twitter. Jim Jatras is kind of a must-follow account on Twitter these days, especially given that there's so many bizarre news coming out and you do want to hear different perspectives. So Jim, uh, it's always great to have you on. Again, uh, congratulations on actually, uh, you know, you know, starting or almost finishing this project of yours. Hopefully, um, hopefully when it is released, you'll give us a heads up and we, we can organize something and, you know, definitely uh, come to the table and discuss it with you on the book. Oh, yes, sir. Looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to that as well. And everybody with that, you know what to do. Worldwarnow.substack.com. Be sure to subscribe. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, worldwarnow underscore on Telegram, worldwarnow telly. Follow me on Twitter. That's GnomeRad. Follow Dimitri at Orthodox Canonist, O Canonist. And with all of that, yeah, like the video, share it. We're thinking about making some changes. We may start doing these as live streams and then just have the live stream up and then reshare it on Substack. You know, So let us know what you think about that idea in the comments. And with all of that, uh, listen to the latest episode of Ether Hour. We'll have that linked below. Subscribe really helps us out on Substack. And with all of that, uh, God bless. <laughs>